Welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, another Onco Snacks edition. This time we have a special guest, Dr. Mark Nolan. Dr. Mark Nolan is a non-invasive cardiologist with a strong interest in cardio oncology and advanced cardiac imaging. He has an echocardiography fellowship from Adelaide, an advanced cardiac imaging and cardio-oncology fellowship from Toronto. To top it all off and to ensure that we know he never sleeps, in 2021, he completed his PhD in cardio-oncology and has published in all of the journals, including Canadian Journal for Cardiology, American Heart Journal, International Journal of Cardiology, and Internal Medicine Journal. We are so grateful to have you here to Mark to spread your pearls of wisdom. Thank you again for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. So, so Mark, um, I think we would um, like to start with with the oldie but the goodie, which is anthracycline um, associated cardiotoxicity. We, uh, even in basic physicians training, people are taught a little bit about this, but obviously we're assuming that there are so many more intricacies to how it presents the permanence of cardiac toxicity associated with any chemotherapy ending with rubicin. So in, in your experience, when you have a patient that is referred to your clinic, um, usually a breast patient, I'm assuming you would get maybe the occasional sarcoma patient or uh, other histologies, but if, if they're coming to you, they've had X amount of anthracycline, and they're presented with heart failure symptoms or they've had a, uh, a, I almost said a restaging echo, that just shows how set I am in my terminology, but um, an echo that shows new um, reduced ejection fraction. Can you just tell us uh, your experience and, and uh, what you generally do with these patients? Yeah, definitely. So amphocycline cardiotoxicity is still very much a thing. It seems to be about... 20% of patients might develop a small ejection fraction drop, more than 5%, and about 10% actually develop a significant drop, um, which isn't always symptomatic. So you have to sort of be, have a high suspicion for it. Um, and we often see that although you can get the LV drop usually in the first 12 months, your risk of heart failure over the next few years has increased three to five-fold. So it's uh, quite a dramatic risk factor. What do we do when we get the patient whose LVF is starting to drop? Well, the first thing that I always want to do is, if you can, identify the high-risk patients before they get that first drop of anthracyclines. So the best way to prevent these patients from developing heart failure is control, just do the simple stuff first. Control their blood pressure. 160 over 80, we can treat that. We can put them on antihypertensives and bring it down. Um, you know, we can, if they're smoking, we can treat that. Um, in some cases, we may even manage the, the their cholesterol, and there's some good evidence that statins can prevent LV dysfunction as well. Um, once that, then you want to monitor them. You want to make sure their ejection fraction doesn't drop during their chemo. There's a few ways to do that. Echo is probably the best way. Um, there's two, really two ways you can measure the ejection fraction with the echo. There's a two-dimensional technique and the three-dimensional technique. Um, <clears throat> they can both be done by the same machine, but they do need different probes. And there's a little bit of, uh, the operator and cardiologist needs to have a little bit of experience to do the 3D technique. And that's really the ideal because it's more reproducible. Now, with 2D ejection fraction measurement, you know, it, it's a good test, but it can be off by about 10%. So hypothetically, Michael, if I measured your, did an echo on you today and you know, I had an ejection fraction of 54% and I did it tomorrow and it was 65%, or has your heart gotten better? Probably not. It's just probably that test-retest probability. 
So with 2D, you need to have a, see a bigger difference before you can say it's a real difference. 3D is a little bit more reproducible. If it's more than 5%, then you can say that there's a real drop. And of course, cardiac MRI is a real, uh, it's the gold standard. It can really pick up very small changes. But of course, that's not always accessible in every center. We're starting to move away from, well, we're trying to recommend against using MUGA scans uh, for the LVF measurements. No, we've got to be realistic. We understand that you know, oncologists need their measurements quickly. We want to start the chemo fast. You don't want to wait to have their echo next month. Um, but the MUGA is it's not as accurate as we used to think it was. You know, We've done some studies comparing it with MRIs, and we find it can be off by 10, 15, more than 15% sometimes. So it can be quite considerable. What do we do once the ejection fraction is actually dropped? Well, really, you want to try and keep the chemo going if you can. Um, if I usually advise at least a pause in the anthracyclines if it's dropped less than 50%, and I usually start treatment as, as quickly as possible. The best, the sta standard treatments are the ACE inhibitors and the beta blockers. So I might usually put them on ramipril and prosopolol, get them back every two or three weeks to so ramp the doses up to the maximum dose, and then I try and repeat the echo in six weeks to make sure the ejection fractions and the cardiac functions moving up and not going down. One little tidbit I'll use is that whenever you get an echo, it's always a good idea to get a global longitudinal strain, which is a measure of um, subclinical function. It's a measure of how well the, the heart's actually deforming. And that can actually give you a better idea if your cardiac function's getting better or worse. It's a bit more reproducible than the LVEF. So, and what, ideally, once you've got beyond the treatment, the heart should get better. I think one of the questions we might have is being, I'm, I'm a, a breast fellow, so I deal with anthracyclines quite a bit. Um, apart from baseline, how, how often would you recommend to do an echo? Because these treatments, yes, I mean, dose dense AC, which is the, you know, the doxorubicin part, it only goes for really two months, right? So, you know, or maybe three months if you make the non-dose dense. Like, do you have a recommendation during treatment? Would you do it every two months to check, especially if they're young? I probably would, it depends on the patient. The first thing I'd want to know is the risk. So if you've got a 40-year-old um, a woman with no other medical history, I might just do a baseline, and then she's getting out for cyclones, I might just do a baseline echo, and maybe just an echo at the end, uh, just to make sure that her heart's function's going well. But let's say I've got a 67-year-old lady, she's diabetic, she's hypertensive, and not well-controlled, and she had a stent put in her heart three years ago. That's someone I'm going to be a little bit more worried about. So with that patient, I would usually recommend getting an echo every three months up until the end of chemo or even up to 12-month period. And then I'd probably recommend getting an echo maybe at 12 months, three years, five years afterwards, just to make sure that LV function stays stable. You mentioned the discrepancies between uh, Mugas and echoes um, and, and gave some very practical considerations, I guess, why we sometimes reach for um, the nuclear medicine heart test uh, in, in place of an echo, is it reasonable, say there's, a as you say, a time period to start someone on chemo, is it reasonable and is there any sort of acceptable, or is this acceptable, I guess, to have a, a, a MUGA to start as a baseline and then follow it up with subsequent echoes or is the discrepancy too, too wide and you really need to do the same scan? The challenge, my, my preference is that you really want to have the, the, use the one modality throughout the, um, throughout the anthracycline treatment. The problem is if you get a MUGA scan for one time point and you get an echo at another time point or an MRI at another time point, they're really not comparable. Um, they're giving different information. They're usually um, 
there's a bit of bias. One technique always measures a little bit higher or lower than the other technique. And you're real, not really sure how to sort of, um, if the, what direction the patient's heart's going in. So my preference, and I know it's a sort of living in an ideal world, is just try and get, use the same technique if you can. If, and if they're going to be, if they're high risk and they're going to be getting a lot of um, LBF measurements, I would probably recommend getting an echo um, and using that as the preferred modality. Mark, with your research, um, and I'm not sure if other people have done this research, in the high-risk population, do you preemptively start patients on, let's say, beta blockers or ACE inhibitors to reduce the risk of anthracycline-related cardiac toxicity? I, I don't at this stage. Uh, I, we don't, I don't think we've really got enough evidence to ad- adopt such, a, um, a, such an aggressive approach. Um, of course, if someone's going to reduce ejection fraction, um, so, say, between 45 and 50% before they get anthracyclines, I may try and start them on ACE inhibitors and beta blockers and then see if we can get them up to a point they can have chemo. Those are ones you may also consider using dexrexoxane, which is a, um, an agent that protects against anthracycline cardiotoxicity. Not used much, but uh, you know, is a very effective agent when used. We sort of use it in patients who have had um, reach challenge with anthracyclines and they've had uh, very high doses before or they've um, had some LV dysfunction before. Um, but usually I, we, I try and use an adoptive approach. So basically, provide the ejection fractions above 50%, then I'll just wa- watch them with echoes and wait, and provided the ejection fraction remains normal, I probably wouldn't use um, uh, ACE inhibitors and beta blockers. What I might do is uh, I might use a more aggressive uh, surveillance technique. So if you've got that 65-year-old patient and their strain is abnormal, so they've got strain of minus 14%, which is a risk factor, even their ejection fractions between 50 and 55%, I might just say, hey, let's get an echo six weeks after the chemo and then three months and then every three months after that. Um, and I might add BMPs and troponins as well, biomarkers, which are a little bit less specific, but can sort of determine if the patient's taking a high risk trajectory or not. Mark, you just answered my question about uh, how far you sort of wait for the ejection fraction to drop before stepping in. Um, I'm assuming also that if the second they have symptoms or, or signs of heart failure, regardless of what the EF is, you would also con- consider stepping in pharma- pharmacologically at that point as well? Absolutely. Once they've developed symptomatic heart failure, that's a very different um, ball game. These are the patients who have very high mortality. Um, so I would treat that patient very aggressively and I'd want to have a multimodality meeting to discuss whether we should continue with amphocyclines or not. Um, I would certainly uh, be encourage the oncology team to consider other options if they're available. Um, but one thing I'll just quickly point out, we talked a lot about amphocyclines, but with trastuzumab, we're now aware that we don't always have to stop the trastuzumab when they uh, develop a slow drop in the ejection fraction. We've had several small studies that suggest if the ejection fraction remains above 40% um, and the patient's asymptomatic, should probably continue the septum without any pause provide you treat them aggressively with ACE inhibitors and beta blockers. And why is that? Why is that? What's the, what's the theory that by not stopping that you can, is that just the preventative measures of the medication that you use? It does, the Herceptin cardiomyopathy does seem to be relatively more benign and does tolerate um, a lot, slight dip in the ejection fraction better. It seems to be due, due to a cellular mechanism. What Herceptin does is it blocks HER2 and the new regulant pathway, which is a repair pathway. So it sort of impairs the heart's body to repair itself. 
whereas anthracyclines actually work on top of our somerays, they create, create free radicals. It just seemed to be more damaging. So an ejection fraction of 45% from anthracyclines seems to pretend a worse prognosis, an ejection fraction of 45% due to Herceptin. They both merit treatment. They both patients I'd see regularly and push their ACE inhibitors and beta blockers up. But we, the one thing that us cardiologists really don't want to do is stop chemotherapy unnecessarily. We're very aware that chemotherapy saves lives. Even a slight pause can uh, reduce the risk of beating cancer. So if there's a path to getting them through their chemo without any missed doses, then that's the path we prefer to take. And is that uh, discrepancy in prognosis between anthracyc and cardiomyopathy and uh, trastuzumab associated cardiomyopathy, is that sort of the, I, I don't even know it's a myth, but uh, in BPT we're always taught, you know, anthracycline cardiotoxicity is irreversible, whereas trastuzumab is reversible. Um, but I think in, in both of our clinical practices, we've realised that it's not necessarily that hard and fast. But is that where that sort of idea Yeah, so it, there seems to be some signal that Herceptin cardiomyopathy may be a little bit more reversible. But like you said, there's always a dozen exceptions to either case. Um, I've certainly seen a lot of Herceptin cardiomyopathies that have improved with treatment if you catch them early. I think one take-home message is regardless of whether it's anthracyclines or Herceptins, you really want to try and catch it early, which is why of the high-risk patients we recommend doing three-monthly or in some cases even six-weekly echoes. And with the newer generation of her two agents, I'm talking about the trastuzumab emtanzines and the trastuzumab deruxacan and all those that are on the horizon, I'm not sure if your research went into that, but can we continue those treatments given that they've got higher potency? Do you more recommend that you sort of stop that if you see a drop in the uh, ejection fraction? Yeah, I have to admit, I haven't kept, um, I'm not aware of the very latest research on this. Um, what I sort of remember from the talks and the conferences I've been to is that these agents seem to be a little less cardiotoxic than Herceptin. We sort of think that cardiotoxicity may be an off-target effect through the new regulum pathway. And these newer agents were a little bit more specific and more, have higher affinity for HER2, maybe less likely to cause those problems. So hopefully, no, hopefully we'll have the studies come out to show that's true. But I think the same process applies, you know, provide the ejection fractions above 40%, keep their life-saving chemo going. And if the heart function drops, don't be afraid to start ACE inhibitors and beta blockers and any other heart failure treatments that may, may benefit the patient. Mark, we've talked a lot about treatment, a.k.a. what to do when things kind of go a bit pear-shaped, but you mentioned earlier about cardioprotection and you, you uh, name-dropped statins as a, as a um, potential therapeutic class that might have some cardioprotection. Do you have any pearls about ways to, you know, as you said, we, we work up the patient, we isolate the high-risk patients, but do you have any pearls about what... Um, body, budding oncologists uh, could do even say before um, referring to a cardiologist in order to reduce the risk of encountering problems? Yeah, look, I think um, basically you just want to get a good baseline cardiovascular risk. Um, there are several calculators that you can do. Um, I always recommend just measure the cholesterol if you can. It doesn't have to be fasting. Um, just a random cholesterol, random LDL is probably as good as a fasting one. Measure their blood pressure. Um, I personally throw that into a little um, online calculator called the ASCBD calculator, and that'll give you the, pa the patient's risk of having a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years, depending on what the blood pressure, smoking history, cholesterol is. If it's more than 5%, I might actually consider organising a calcium score for the patient. 
The calcium score is just a CAT scan, doesn't have any contrast, um, very small amount of radiation. And you can actually measure how much calcified plaque is in the heart. And if that, the idea being if that's high, if that's more than 100, this is probably a high-risk patient, and you should probably just put them on a statin straight up. Um, and there is some evidence that statins may actually protect the ejection fraction of the heart during chemo as well. But I think it all just comes down to if you, you know the heart's going to take a kick from the chemo, so you really just want to optimise the heart overall health. Blood pressure and identifying those who benefit from cholesterol-lowering medications, optimising their diabetes and their lifestyle, these are all the things that make, can make a difference right from day zero. Mark, you're such a, you've got so many pearls of wisdom when it comes to these things, which is wonderful because I can very much remember the first patient on I've had on Herceptin and I'm like, you know, you kind of sit there, deer in headlights, wondering what to do. For all of our listeners out there, medical, oncology or otherwise, do you have any other tips that we might not have mentioned today that you think would be worthwhile from a either prevention or management perspective of these, I guess, this high-risk cohort of patients? No, look, I think, I think the most important fact, point is just to have the cardiologists and oncologists working well together, encourage us to, to attend each, other meet, each, each other's meetings, um, give presentations, and be on each other's mobile phones so if you, and accessible. So if you've got any questions, just, you know, who to call and who to ask. I've got about 10 oncologists' uh, mobiles on my phone, and, you know, I often give them a call when I sort of have a question about the chemo that the patients are getting, and I always have time when they call me. And I think that's really just how you, how you get a good service going and how you prevent the cardiac complications uh, from building, just from being accessible and there when the team or the patient needs you. Mark, thank you so much for coming on. As Josh said, I don't think we've ever had a guest that has dropped so many pearls of wisdom in such a small in such a small space of time. And just so casually, just, oh, here's one, here's another. Every sentence seems to have uh, so much uh, helpful information. So thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate you taking the time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Wonderful. For our next episode of uh, Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, Snacks, we will be discussing the eternal paradox, not internal paradox, the eternal challenge of peripheral neuropathy related to chemotherapy. So we hope to see you then. Yeah. 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 Yeah.